Let's pray together. We're about to receive God's word. And we hope that he'll speak to us. Let's ask him to. Father, please do speak to us through your word now. Let these not just be words on a page or a sermon from Matt. We need your word. We need to soak it up into our hearts and be filled up with it. We need it to flow through our minds and our thinking, our way of seeing reality and transform us. And you know the ways each one of us individually need that to happen. So let miracles take place now. Reorganize our hearts. Reorganize the way we are perceiving our lives and what's ahead of us and in front of us according to what's true, according to your word. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. It's been a bit of a crisis week as a church. Um, some of you are more aware of that than others. Some of you may be directly swept up into some crises of your own right now. God has proven himself faithfully at every turn through the crises of the week, uh, many of which we're all aware of. Um, things going on with the Efords, the Lowry's car accident, Blake Register's accident uh, in his, his woodworking shop. Um, there's other crises going on that everybody may not be aware of. Um, things of an emotional nature or um, private family matters going on. Um, this is kind of the way it always is. There's always a lot going on. We live in a fallen world. Lots of things can go wrong. God is still on the throne and he's still in charge and we have every reason to be at peace and every reason to rejoice this morning nonetheless. But I was thinking as I was driving back from the hospital when I went to go visit the Lowry's after I found out about their accident. And I was actually driving back. My route back from CMC Northeast takes me down the same road where they had their accident, Flow Store Road. And, I, you know, you're just thinking and you're driving. I was thinking, I wonder where exactly it happened, looking around for evidence of a wreck and thinking, you know, how easy, how easy it is for a car accident to happen. I mean, we rocket along these roads, some of these country roads, two lanes. So we're, we're flying 55 miles per hour. Another car's flying at us 55 miles per hour with just feet between us. And we trust the yellow lines and that we're not going to cross them. But it does happen. And, and it was reminding me how everything can change just in an instant. You know, we have our framework of what today is going to look like and what this week is going to look like and what this month is going to look like, but we're not really promised that everything's going to stay stable like that. Everything can change in an instant. And again, that's okay. None of that's outside of the realm of God's control, but it makes you stop and think a little bit. It makes you stop and gives you a little perspective on life. And I was thinking as I was driving back, you know, if that happened, if I was driving along and Somebody crossed the yellow lines and hit me head on. And that was it. What would I feel was important? In those moments, how would that rearrange my priorities? 
You know, one day we're all going to be in a situation like that where, where we realize, okay, this is coming to a close. I always knew it was going to happen. But here it comes. And put yourself in that position now. Just use your imagination and think about it. What will seem important to you on that day? What things that you previously lived as though they're important will suddenly seem really, really unimportant? You know, we tend to live as modern Americans as if everything is important. And we stress about everything and we hustle about to try to do and fit in everything because everything's important. And obviously that's not true. If everything's important, then nothing's important. It's like if you tell every child they're special, what you're really saying is none of you are special. You're all at the equal level of specialness. It's flat. If we treat everything in our life like it's important, nothing's important. I read in a book recently that if you don't prioritize your life, somebody else will. So we live in a world that's always trying to prioritize our lives for us. All, All these influences shouting at us, this is the most important thing. Advertisements, family members, coworkers, so let's just try to clear our minds as we approach this passage. What really is important? What is the most important thing? Because life is really, really short. It's a good question, and it's the question addressed in our passage. And I think what would be most helpful is if we read the entire passage and then go back and look at it a little bit more closely. So let's read it together. Have that question in your mind, that perspective. What is really important? Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. You remember last week, Jesus is in the temple courts and he's disputing with these Jewish religious leaders. The scribes are sort of the experts in the law. And one of the scribes has been watching and listening, and now he approaches And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, And with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more Then all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Nobody dared to ask any more questions after this answer. 
Scroll back up to verse 28, and it's a good question. The scribe comes. All the other times it's been groups of antagonistic people, but this time it's one man, and he's actually quite open and amicable to Jesus, and he asks a good question. Which commandment is the most important of all? The phrasing there is the idea of what's the first commandment? What's the preeminent commandment? If you're just going to obey one, let's just hypothetically say, out of the 613 Old Testament commandments, you're going to just pick out one, which one would it be? And this was a common thing that Jewish religious authorities would debate and discuss. It was just an interesting, you know how you talk shop with people at your work? This is sort of how they talk shop. What What would you pick? to be the one commandment that's more important and preeminent than all the others. And they would discuss it and discuss it, but nobody really knew the answer to it. But Jesus did know. Now, we weren't standing there, so I don't know. I don't know if for just a moment Jesus said, hmm, let me think. I've got it. Or if he just, straight from the hip, knew. I I have to believe he just... New, he just said it like, what's the weather right now? Just, this is the answer. He knew what's the most important commandment. All these other religious authorities didn't. And his answer silenced them all. Remember, they're here in the temple court, and he's just surrounded by opponents, just trying to trick them, trying to trip them up, challenging his authority. And something about his answer rendered them all mute, and none dared to ask him any more questions after this. So let's look at his answer. And as we do, remember the question isn't, what is the greatest insight from the Bible? The question isn't, what's the greatest suggestion in the Old Testament scriptures? Now the question was, what's the greatest commandment, command? A command is a a singular thing. It's something that someone in authority delivers to someone beneath them in authority and expects a response of obedience. So this is the greatest commandment of God to his people. Let's look at Jesus' reply, starting at verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we see three things that Jesus gives back. He gives a basis for his answer and then he gives a twofold answer. He actually gives two commands. The basis for his answer in verse 29, he begins to quote a very, very important passage of Old Testament Scripture. It was very important to the Jewish people. They would actually quote this Scripture at the beginnings and endings of their days, at the beginnings and endings of all their gathered worship services. Really, really devout Jews would put this Scripture that he's quoting in little boxes and like wear them around their heads, little boxes that they would tie to their doorposts of their homes. So first thing he does is quote something that's just centrally, centrally important to God's people. And it's all about monotheism. How many of y'all expected me to say that in answer to the question? 
It's all about monotheism, the belief that there's just one God. There's just one God. So he starts, and he doesn't even begin with a commandment. He begins with a reminder of something true. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you have to remember the Jewish people, one of the things that really made them unique was that they just believed in one God. In all the surrounding civilizations, they had bunches of gods. They had the God of fertility, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of water. But the Jews stubbornly insisted that there was only one. And a lot of the neighboring civilizations thought they were crazy to hedge all their bets on just one God. Just one God. Now, you're not tempted to polytheism, the belief that there's many gods, in any official form. I don't think any of you go from here to another worship service to worship Allah, then to some other worship service to worship some god of the rain or some god of fertility. And when you fill out a form, if it asks about your religion, it's Christianity and you believe in one God. You're, we are monotheists. But we are tempted to worship other gods. We are all tempted to sort of an undercover polytheism where we divide ourselves up in the worship of a bunch of little gods, a bunch of little idols. I'm going to share with you a really, really smart man named Tim Keller wrote a book about this, and this is his definition of an idol. Now see if this connects with you. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant, then I'll feel secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Now, looked at through that lens, I think we can all see that we're always surrounded by little gods, little idols. And so as we try to get in our imaginations and in our hearts into this conversation between this scribe and Jesus, where Jesus is telling him the most important, the first and preeminent commandment, we have to start here. First, remember, there's not a bunch of gods. There's one God. You have to start from there to figure out what's truly important. Now he gives us the greatest command, the preeminent command. Verse 30. We've established that there's one God, and you shall love the Lord your God. See if you can find a key word in this verse. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Catch keyword in there? All. The Greek word, I'm no Greek expert, but it's holos. It's where we get our word whole. It's the idea of all the parts present and working as a whole. So as you shall love the Lord your God from the wholeness of your heart, from the wholeness, the entirety, the completeness of your soul, with the wholeness of your mind, out of the wholeness of your strength. 
The heart is sort of the center of your being. It's where your motivations come from. It's what you want. The soul is your psyche. It's your identity. It's who you are. The mind is your understanding, your thinking, what you think about. The strength is literally muchness. It's your power, your ability. It's the things that you do. All of that. What's left from that list? It's everything. It's your wholeness. It's your entirety. It's meant to be devoted to this one thing. Loving the one true God. Then he goes on. And he actually gives them a second one. That's more than the scribe even asked for. Verse 31, a second command. And the scribe said, I'm sorry, I went too far. Verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the first commandment, not suggestion or insight into life, commandment, what's expected of us, is to love the one true God with your everything. Your entire being. And then the second is to love your neighbor, which is really just anybody around you, all the people that you come into contact with in your life, to love them. How? As yourself, the same way you love yourself. So all those instinctual ways that you love yourself are meant to be turned outward toward the people around you. If you're hungry, what do you instinctively want to do for yourself? Feed yourself. If you're thirsty, what do you instinctively want to do for yourself? Get yourself something to drink. If you're without something, what do you instinctively want to do for yourself? Supply that need. If you're sad, you want to comfort. Happy, you want to rejoice. Lost, you want to direct. All these instincts that we naturally do for ourselves, God commands us, do that for other people, your neighbors. Live as if your nervous system extends beyond just you into the people around you. Commands. Not optional. Expected. Demanded. Now let's see how the scribe responds to this before we think about how we need to respond to this. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe responds, that's true. He's starting to get it. Where all these other religious leaders just turned away in stubbornness, the scribe seems to be starting to get it. That's true. He even applies it to himself in that verse 33, and he says, following these two commands is is more important than all the whole sacrificial system. And remember who this was. He and his colleagues, their entire lives were devoted to this system of sacrifices and offerings and and the legalities of all this. And they're standing in the temple courts during Passover where it's prime time for this kind of religious activity. And the scribe's acknowledging, you're right. It doesn't matter how many offerings, how much sacrifice, if we're not loving God and loving people with our entirety as ourselves, 
then we're missing it. That's a huge thing for a scribe to say. It's like a pastor saying, it doesn't matter how many sermons I preach or how excellent they are, if I don't love the Lord my God with my entirety, and if I don't love my neighbor as myself, my neighbor as myself, I can't pretend that I'm pleasing God in the least. That's preeminent. That's more important. It's first. Now, everybody else has a response as well. The scribe responds with agreement, starting to look at his life maybe a little differently. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. But look at how everybody else responds. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Why wouldn't they? Why did they stop at this point, do you think? Well, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't spell it out. So this is conjecture. But I have to wonder if this shut them up because it cut them to their hearts. Remember, this was a professionally religious group of people. And whoever the most religious person in this sanctuary is, think about it, who you, who you think might be the most religiously devout person, they were like a hundred times more devout than that. Their whole lives were wrapped up in this. But here, Jesus, maybe he looked around at the crowd when he said it, laid them open, and maybe they felt the conviction of, yes, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Sadducee, I'm a Herodian, I'm a scribe, but I have fallen short on the first, foremost, greatest, most preeminent commandment. If I'm honest with myself, I do not love the Lord my God with my entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not loving my neighbor with the same kind of love and care that I have for myself. If they were honest in that moment, surely what they would have realized is they needed a Savior. They needed a Savior. That passage we read at the beginning a Savior was born. That's why we're so excited at Christmas. A Savior. As we close, we need to think about our response. And I think the first one is we need to acknowledge that this is impossible. It's impossible. I, I can tell you, you need to love God more. And you can't make yourself do it. It's impossible. It was impossible for the scribes. It was impossible for the ancient Jewish religious elite. And it's impossible for us. That's why we need a savior. That's why what we don't need is more religious Febreze to spray over our lives. We need to be forgiven of our failures here. We need to confess and repent where we've fallen short. And we need to ask God to forgive us through Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is that he will do it. And in the process, he gives us a new heart that's now capable of this. He gives us a new heart that's capable of loving God like this and loving people like this. So I think our first response is we need to acknowledge that it's impossible without divine intervention. 
have you acknowledged your inability to live up to God's primary command on your own? Have you confessed and repented of that? Have you, by the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ, received not only forgiveness, but a new heart? And are you growing into that? Is your life characterized by a growing, genuine love for God above all others, above all else? A growing, genuine love for people and a commitment to serve them the same way you serve yourself. Second response, I think that it's appropriate is, first, we need to acknowledge that it's impossible without God. And I think we need to acknowledge that it's wonderful. This is a wonderful calling. It's a wonderful design that you have. I think we settle for so much less than what God designed us to be and enjoy and have. This is the command that draws together into one all other commands. This is the purpose that draws together into one all your other purposes. This is the love that draws together into one all your other loves. This is the command and the design that makes us whole rather than fragmented and divided out in a million directions. I was thinking about this all week and an analogy came to mind and I decided I'm not going to share the analogy because it's too confusing. I said, no, I'll share the analogy because it's helped me think about it. And I said, no, I'm not going to share it. It's too confusing. But I'm going to share it with you. I was thinking about it in terms of a piano. So take this piano right here. If we could ask that piano, what is your primary purpose? What's the greatest purpose for you? And in this analogy, the piano can talk. The piano wouldn't say, well, my purpose is to play Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It wouldn't say, well, my purpose is to play Amazing Grace. My design is to play the doxology. No, it would say, my purpose is to play music. And that music will take different forms of different songs. But if I can never play Hark the Herald Angels sing anymore, I still can play music. My, my purpose is not bound up into this one song. I'm made to play music itself. Whatever format that takes. And when we ask ourselves, what is the most important thing in my life? If you ask people that, you might get answers like, most important thing in my life is my family. Or the most important thing in my life is my work, my career, my body of work that I've built up over the years. Or the most important thing in my life is this hobby I have. I love this hobby, and this really is what gives my life meaning. Now, thinking about it in this setting, we can see how small and measly those purposes really are. That's like a piano picking just one song to be its purpose. Our purpose is to love God. God is music itself. 
And that love for God will take different forms. It'll take the shape of love for family. It'll take the shape of love for work and your coworkers. It'll take the, the shape of how you approach your eating and your budgeting. It'll take the form of a billion different things, just like this piano's purpose for playing music will take the form of a billion different songs. But none of those, none of those can bring your heart into a whole. There's only one thing that you can devote your life to and be made whole in the process, and that's God. You know, I talk to so many people. I do a lot of counseling, counsel myself most of the time, and everybody's so stressed out, and we're so anxious, and we've got so much pressure, and it's so hard, and we want peace. In our modern American thinking, peace is the absence of all that stuff. It's the absence of pressure. It's the absence of stress. It's the absence of all this stuff going on. But you know, the biblical conception of peace isn't the absence of all those things. It's wholeness. The biblical language used to describe peace is wholeness, where all the parts are together and working together. So maybe what we really need isn't for our lives to just settle down. That would be great. Maybe what we really need is to be made whole again through Jesus Christ. And for all of our pursuits to be drawn up together into the one capital P pursuit of loving God. For all our loves to be drawn up and bound together. For our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength to not be fragmented up in a billion directions, but brought together into focus. And then when things do go wrong, when we do get beat up and we can't play this song that we love to play anymore, well, it's okay, we can still play music. Maybe it'll take a different form. I can still worship God. I can still love God. And therefore, I'm still whole. The only thing that can be taken away from you that would make you not whole anymore is God himself. And through Jesus Christ, you know that will never, ever happen. It's a good question. What is most important? It's a good question to ask at Christmas time. Because at Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of the one that not only knows the answer, but enables us to embrace it and live in light of it. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy and forgiveness because I know that I, and I'm sure everybody in here, has fallen and continually falls so short of your most foundational, fundamental commandments. I thank you for your forgiveness and that you've made a way to restore us. Made a way for us to be tuned up. made a way for us to actually live up to this glorious design and calling you've made us for. So may each and every one of us receive that mercy, grace, forgiveness through Jesus Christ, those new hearts, and may we each and all together as one grow to love you with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our minds, with all our strength. May we grow to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.